Well, we're going to go ahead and start. Welcome back from the break. Uh, I am Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies uh, here at the Cato Institute. Uh, most of the panels today, you will have noticed, focus on uh, the economic arguments and sometimes the technological arguments for alternative currencies. Uh, this panel instead is going to take a look at the constitutional and regulatory aspects uh, of moving to alternative currencies. Uh, I can say as someone who previously served as an economist on a congressional committee, uh, that unfortunately winning the economic argument is only half the battle and often not even that. Uh, in order to successfully move beyond our current monetary arrangements, uh, we must also win the legal and constitutional fights, not to mention winning over public opinion. Uh, to do so, uh, we must take a trip back in history to both the origins of our country as well as the origins of our central bank. Uh, what did the framers of both the Constitution and the Federal Reserve Act intend? How closely do today's realities match those intentions? Uh, the economic arguments presented today, as well as at previous Cato Monetary Conferences, which I should note are all online, so you could watch them for hours on end, uh, will only be successful, if to, in my opinion, if they're built on solid constitutional foundations. Uh, so this morning, we will examine the, the history of those foundations. We are very fortunate to have a very distinguished panel of experts to offer their thoughts on these issues. Their buyers are in your packet, so I'll only give very brief introductions to each of them. Uh, first, we'll be speaking, will be Cato's president, John Allison, who prior to coming to Cato, served as CEO and chairman of BB&T Bank. Following John will be Edwin Vieira, best known for his monetary legal classic, Pieces of Eight. Edwin has also argued a number of cases before the Supreme Court, so he's not just a legal theorist, but also a practitioner, which I should emphasize is really a commonality on this theme, uh, on this panel, rather, uh, less uh, while each of the a panelist has a variety of writings and scholarship. There are also actually people who have done things. So again, I think that practical real-world experience uh, that comes to this panel. Our final panelist is Walker Todd. Uh, Walker has held a variety of legal and research positions with both the New York as well as the Cleveland Federal Reserve Banks. Uh, don't hold that against him. He's actually a really nice guy. Uh, and he's also one of the foremost legal scholars in the powers of the Federal Reserve, particularly uh, its monetary powers as well as its powers uh, to assist failing institutions. So with that, I want to thank all of our panelists. And I want to turn the podium over to my very intelligent, smart, charming boss, John Allison. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. I appreciate that introduction. You get to stay. It's good. Um, I want to thank all of you first for being here, uh, and thank you, uh, those of you that are sponsors, for your sponsorship of Cato. We really, really do appreciate your support. Um, I'm going to talk about this issue in a little broader context. Uh, I want to talk about the issue of changing the monetary regime. Uh, regime in a broad context. I have been an opponent of the Federal Reserve and the FDIC and related entities for many, many years, having tried to run a bank under the regulatory nightmare uh, of our current system and the monetary nightmare of our current system. And uh, probably most people in this room have had the same kind of concerns, and yet we really hadn't made any progress, right? I mean, the Federal Reserve is much more powerful than it was 30 years ago. We've been going in the wrong direction. Um, our goal is to change that game. And we're, we're changing it. I believe we've taken a giant step. We've created the Cato Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. And we have brought together the most talented group ever whose primary focus is really having a significant impact on the Federal Reserve and radically reducing its autonomy and its power. Uh, that group includes people that are libertarians that would support free banking, but there are a number of people in there that aren't libertarians, that are advocates of some kind of rules-based system, that are advocates of alternative currencies, but they're all concerned about an undisciplined Fed and the implications of that 
uh, for economic well-being and particularly uh, for the whole world because of the U.S. having the world's reserve currency. So, you know, being a business guy, what you find is you, find, you try to hire people that are a lot smarter than you and get them working on the problem, and that's what exactly what we've done. And we're great to have George Selgin and Mark and Jim all as, as part of the K2 team, and we're going to add a lot of resources. And we've gotten a lot of financial support because a lot of people are very interested in this issue and its implications. Um, actually, my work's done. I'm just going to let them go to the job, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll share with you a few other thoughts about uh, actually uh, changing the Federal Reserve. There's a technical fight over policy, but there's also a philosophical fight here. Uh, one of the questions is, should the Federal Reserve exist philosophically? And that actually goes back to what's the right role of government? Uh, as a libertarian, I believe that the purpose of government, and its only purpose, but it's a very important purpose, is to protect individual rights. It's to keep me from taking what you've produced, what you've earned, by the use of force or fraud, and to keep you from taking what I've produced, what I've earned, by the use of force or fraud. And that is the very important but very limited role of government. And there are debates among libertarians, but the general consensus is that means that the three legitimate functions of government are national defense to keep the bad guys overseas from taking us higher rights, uh, a police force to keep the bad guys in the U.S. from taking our rights, and a reasonable uh, a court system so we can settle disputes without having to apply to force. The reason that we believe that government has to be very strictly limited, government has a gun, they, and they use it a lot over history. You know, Walmart can try to convince you to buy their products by offering you better prices, whatever, but you don't have to go to Walmart. If you don't pay your taxes, they can put you in jail or they can shoot you, depending on where that is. Uh, and over history, government has killed hundreds of millions of people. It sponsored many, many wars, and therefore government is important and very dangerous and has to be controlled. If you look at the list of those uh, roles for government, monetary policy is not on the list. It doesn't fit on that list. Your government should be able to borrow money, uh, like individual companies borrow money for legitimate purposes, i.e. to finance a war. But you don't want to give the guy with the gun also all the money. That's a bad combination. <laughs> and in the long term, you are certain to get bad outcomes. So having the Federal Reserve exist is philosophically a bad idea. It's also ethically a bad idea because it, in the end, gets in the redistribution of wealth business, which is not, which not a legitimate function of government at all, and it's particularly not a legitimate function of a bunch of government bureaucrats, right, that represent the Federal Reserve. And you can see examples of redistribution of wealth uh, that have serious ethical implications. During the recent financial crisis, the federal government, the Federal Reserve, chose to bail out a bunch of high-risk, high-rollers at Citigroup. That was a powerful ethical decision. <laughs> they actually bailed out a lot of people outside of TARP because they bailed out all the speculators on Wall Street. In the old days before the Federal Reserve, when we had market corrections, who got cream? The speculators. They got to go out of business. Today, we, we bail out the speculators. And who, do, who gets creamed in that process? It's the home builders with two pickup trucks and 10 uh, employees. Those are the guys that got killed in this last, this last correction. That's a massive redistribution of wealth. Should government bureaucrats be doing that? And of course, the, the real distribution is going now is choosing to hold interest rates below market rates, and that's taking wealth from savers and giving it to consumers or to the stock market, however you want to think about that. You see that in the banking business where you have these middle class 
people that worked all their lives, saved a little money, put in CDs, they're in their 70s or 80s, they really shouldn't be doing a lot of risky investments, and the return on their CDs is less than their spending costs, and they're, they're consuming their capital, and they're going to run out of money before uh, they die than they thought they had enough savings. That's a really big ethical decision, and institutions like the Federal Reserve shouldn't be making that decision. So the Federal Reserve doesn't fit philosophically, and related to that, it's an unethical institution by definition. Um, it's also unconstitutional, and we got more constitutional scholars here, but I can read the Constitution. <laughs> you can read it. It's really clear. It's not confusing. <laughs> it says that basically uh, that uh, we can coin money based on gold and silver standards, uh, but it doesn't give permission for the existence of anything close to the Federal Reserve or the FDIC or the OCC or any of those other agencies. They should never have existed, or they're clearly blatantly unconstitutional. By the way, I've had the opportunity to have two Supreme Court justices, sitting justices, tell me the Federal Reserve is clearly unconstitutional. I asked them if they were going to do anything about it, and they said, absolutely not. <laughs> so they know it's unconstitutional. Um, one of the things we have to do in changing and in, in really taking on uh, the existing Federal Reserve, there's a great story about how wonderful the Fed has been. Now, it's a bizarre story for those of us that have been actually involved in what the Fed's actually done, but the general belief is that markets create fires and the Federal Reserve puts them out. Now, my observation is, is the Federal Reserve creates fires, and then eventually, after half the town burns down, they do sometimes put them out, and then while they're starting another fire. Uh, they're the causes of booms and busts in the economics. Yes, markets have correction. Markets uh, get overly optimistic, but the Fed magnifies those corrections. They, by their own admission, are the primary initial cause of the Great Depression. Uh, they certainly caused the, the, the inflationary bubble in the 70s that led to the early 80s correction. I, in my, I've written a book on the financial crisis that describes how the Fed was a major cause of the 2007-2009 economic correction. They are major negative force in terms of booms and busts. And, 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 but that's not the story not just the average Joe, but even academically uh, intelligent people, business people, don't understand that story. So we've got to first go to the academy and start a new story. We've got to really help people understand the history of the Federal Reserve. We've got to look at some of the practical implications of, of some of their policies and what they mean from an academic perspective, to challenge some of the, the, the beliefs that, are, that, that exist in the academy. We've got to be, we reach out over time to the business community with arguments that show the Federal Reserve creates cycles and makes it harder for businesses to do calculation and invest longer term in the future. And ultimately, you have to reach the political community. I think we start working on the political community soon, but I, I see politicians as kind of the residual. We do have to have a more effective argument in the academy with business, with the average Joe, if we're ever going to really move the political process, although we start working on that process. One of our challenges is to help people understand the concept of opportunity cost. How good could it have been? Are there other alternatives that might have worked? And, and I think that is a really important part of our work because most people don't think in opportunity cost. They don't see how things could have been better. That's one reason that markets work so better. You know, when uh, Steve Jobs came along, there may have been three other people on the planet that saw an iPad, <laughs> but most entrepreneurs see things that the average person doesn't see. That's one problem with government bureaucracies. They aren't entrepreneurs. They don't see the opportunity cost. 
And if things muddle along at 2%, that seems to be okay because it's not as bad as what somebody else is doing somewhere at some time. We've got to help them understand that we could have a far more robust economy if we had sound money, if we had rational uh, economic policies related to both regulations and monetary policy. Um, in that process, I'm really excited about the alternatives. I, I don't make a judgment of whether Bitcoin's good, bad, but I do believe we can help create alternative currencies. And I do believe there's an opportunity to do to the uh, uh, Federal Reserve what FedEx and, and uh, 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 UPS and email have done to the post office. So maybe we can't get them out of business, but we can create competitive pressures on them. And one of our goals here is to help create that kind of environment so the Fed is less likely to support legal action that stops these alternatives. You know, the post office would like to get rid of FedEx. It's too late. They can't do it. Uh, and that's what we want to help do. So we want to help, if we can, intellectually design these systems, but also help lay the intellectual ground for why we ought to have alternatives to the Federal, Federal Reserve and in that process create market discipline. We will be involved in the political process. The Brady Commission is possibly now, the Republicans are in control, going to really take a serious look at the 100-year history of the Fed. That's a fantastic opportunity for us to you know, really present the real history and look at the negative consequences of Fed policies and what alternatives might, might have been. Uh, we think, I think, there's real opportunity for significant amendment to Dodd-Frank. Because the interesting thing about Dodd-Frank is creating a lot of negative consequences in things like community banks that even Democrats aren't thrilled about. So there is a room. I'd like to repeal Dodd-Frank, but if we can't do that, we might get serious amendments to Dodd-Frank. Um, one of the things, and, and Bert Ely is here, one of the things I'm very personally interested in is trying to create a, a private deposit insurance fund. It is doable. Uh, Bert actually designed a system back in the 90s that would have worked. And if it had have existed, the recent correction would have been a lot less severe than it, it, than it was because we would have imposed much more discipline on the large banks. They couldn't have gotten away. They, 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 they have had regulatory capture. They got away with capital ratios that a market would have never tolerated and private insurance pools would have never tolerated. And I think that's an actually doable concept. And a lot of the justification for regulation comes from deposit in, the existence of deposit insurance because the implication of the taxpayers backing up banks, then you've got to have regulations that go with that. So un, doing something about the private deposit, uh, about the FDIC, could be a big step toward bringing down the regulatory burden on the industry. Um, one thing I would argue, you know, this, it sounds like a hopeless task. Uh, taking on the Federal Reserve because they got an incredible amount of power and incredibly got a lot of money, right? Uh, on the other hand, they, the government needs them to finance their crazy spending days and their huge deficits. On the other side of that, I am almost certain that we will have another monetary crisis. You can't do what the Federal Reserve is. It might be 10 years from now. It might be 15 years from now. And when that happens, we want to have laid the groundwork to say, instead of this time, the Fed being the hero, Let's let people really understand the Fed was the cause. And at that point, we might get radical change. So the long-term goal is to look for that opportunity when we have another monetary upset and, and be prepared to have radical change to the system. And that maybe, in that process, get rid of the Federal Reserve with a radically different free market-oriented monetary and regulatory system. Thank you very much. Well, uh, we will now turn the uh, podium over to Edwin.
standards. Thank you. Uh, my name is Edwin Vieira. If I have any claim to fame that would be relevant to this conference, it is the book that I wrote, actually originally in 1983, and then it was revised upwards and double uh, the amount of typeface in uh, 2000, called Pieces of Eight, referring, of course, to the Spanish mill dollar, which is the constitutional dollar, Article 1, Section 9, and the Seventh Amendment. We come to the Federal Reserve System in comparison to the Constitution, and we see contradiction and antagonism. Of course, the Federal Reserve System, as anyone can intuit, if you will, simply from the statute as amended, and obviously from the way it operates, is a form of central economic planning. And if the 20th century taught anyone anything, it is that central economic planning doesn't work. So one would wonder how under the Constitution of the United States we have a system of central economic planning which unfortunately integrates the worst aspects of bank and state because the government, the general government in Washington has made itself the surety for the banks and through the banks for the various financial houses with which the banks are allied and therefore the banks and the financial houses hold the public hostage potentially indefinitely. Now, if we come to the constitutional propositions, I don't want to go into great detail of that. I wrote a 1,700-page book. Uh, when I studied quantum mechanics at Harvard, we had a professor who didn't pay uh, much attention to questions coming from the audience where the answers were in the bibliography that he had passed out at the beginning of the class, which was about as thick as the New York telephone directory. And his response was to those questions, printing has been invented. Take advantage of that. But I will cover two aspects of it, kind of the basic aspect, Federal Reserve system generating currency or money. And of course, with respect to the banks, that is a form of bill of credit or discredit, if you will. And certainly with respect to the general government in Washington, because Title 12 of the United States Code, Section 411, makes uh, Federal Reserve notes an obligation of the United States. So we're dealing with a statutory, clearly statutory bill of credit. And the question arises, how can the general government generate bills of credit on its own or delegate in some way to a private cartel the authority to generate bills of credit that will be credited in some way by the general government? And the short answer is, if you go back to the US Constitution, go back one step earlier, Articles of Confederation gave the Continental Congress the power to borrow money and emit bills on the credit of the United States. And those bills that it emitted were called the continental currency. And all of the state governments assumed that same type of authority. Now, when the Constitution was presented in its first draft, at least, in the Philadelphia Convention, that language from the Articles of Confederation was used. Congress shall have the power to borrow money and emit bills on the credit of the United States. And in a rather acrimonious debate, which you can find in Madison's notes as one example, those words, and emit bills, were struck from the draft of the Constitution. So Article 1, Section 8, Clause 2 now says, Congress shall have the power to borrow money on the credit of the United States. It doesn't say anything about bills. And one would think that given that the powers of Congress are solely the powers delegated to it explicitly in the Constitution, that that power to emit bills was proposed and then stricken in the convention that the Constitution denies 
Congress the power to emit bills. Pretty simple, right? Wrong. Because you have this intermediate institution called the Supreme Court, which makes mistakes every day of the year. For those people who think the Supreme Court is some kind of uh, Delphic oracle that gives us the right answer, read its decision in Payne versus Tennessee, volume 500 of the United States Reports, the greatest work of fiction ever written by man. And there is a footnote there, runs about three pages long in eight-point type, which gives you all of the opinions of the Supreme Court, which they say reversed an earlier constitutional decision. And those are probably ones that explicitly did so and mentioned that earlier constitutional decision. They didn't reverse by implication or by saying they were no longer going to follow that or that was outdated or whatever. So the list is probably about twice as long. And that's our problem. Subsequent to the Supreme Court, uh, Civil War, the Supreme Court decided a number of cases, Knox versus Lee, uh, Julian versus Greenman, which upheld the authority of Congress to issue what amounted to bills of credit, but of course did not uphold the authority of the Federal Reserve System, which didn't exist at that time. What's interesting about the Federal Reserve System, it's a cartel structure. And it was recognized as such. You read the debates on the Federal Reserve Act, 1912, 1913, you'll see this being brought out and it being questioned as to whether that kind of a structure could be legislated by Congress. Well, it was. Comes Roosevelt and the New Deal and one of the first things that Roosevelt put in, in his attempt to raise prices by killing pigs and pouring milk into the gutter, was the National Industrial Recovery Act, which if you read the literature of the times, people recognized as being parallel to Mussolini's corporative state system in Italy. Mussolini was not an opera buffa character at that time. Even Winston Churchill considered him to be a great statesman. In any event, the National Re Industrial Recovery Act set up cartels throughout industry. So there was a steel cartel, and there was a coal cartel, and there was a poultry cartel. And the poultry cartel question came to the U.S. Supreme Court, famous case, Schechter versus United States, ALA Schechter Poultry Company versus the United States. And the question was, could Congress delegate to these private entities, these cartels which are called industrial code authorities, the authority it had given them to set prices and wages and regulations with respect to production? And the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that this type of system was, and I quote, unknown to our law, unquote. Pretty broad statement. Unknown. We couldn't find it anywhere. Wasn't there. They threw out the National Industrial Recovery Act on that basis. Why is the Federal Reserve System still with us? Because the Federal Reserve System came under a different statute. If it had been part of the National Industrial Recovery Act, it would have been gone. And subsequently, the courts have refused systematically to deal with this question for a very obvious reason. They can't solve it. They can state that a provision of the Federal Reserve Act or the whole bloody act is unconstitutional for this reason or that reason or violates some statute. But they can't tell Congress how to correct the problem. And there's the difficulty. So I can imagine that no justice, perhaps myself included, would want to throw the monkey wrench into the system without the ability to control the outcome of that process. And I think we're fairly sure to recognize that Congress is not going to solve this difficulty in the immediate future. Uh, the administration, the presidency, has powers left over from the Roosevelt era, what they used to call emergency powers, pretty broad if you read them. 12 U.S.C. Section 95A is a pretty broad one. Gives sweeping authority, Secretary of Treasury and the president, to control every aspect of banking activity in this country in an emergency situation, which they're the ones who, you know, they're the ones who declare when that happens. 
But you can't expect that the administration is going to do that because it's obviously in bed with the banks. So the solution that I'm proposing for years now, spitting, uh, whistling down a wind tunnel to hear, the, to hear the echo, right? Nothing ever happens. That the states take over this role as the primary actors in the adoption of our alternative currency. And the reason for that is ultimately, whatever this alternative currency is, it will have to be imposed on public officials, hopefully at every level of the federal system. There really is no uniquely private solution to this as long as we have government in this country. So until we adopt Nori Rothbard's anarcho-capitalist position, we have to look at some aspect of government involvement as part of the solution to the problem. Well, number one, obviously we need an economically sound and constitutional unit of money. It has to be fixed by definition in some scientific manner. It should not require, should not promote central economic planning. It should not be easily subject to political manipulation. That is, we don't want to have to manage it by means of some kind of monetary policy that the politicians are going to uh, deal with. It should be tied directly to the free market so that ultimately its quality and its supply are subject to the people's control. It should be as technologically advanced as possible, yet proof to the greatest degree against technological failure or sabotage. There should be a simple, yet effective means to introduce this unit of money into the present unstable monetary system as quickly and thoroughly as possible. And that should give the people of this country some degree of immediate protection from the crises that we're anticipating are going to continue, and that will enable the state and local governments and the free markets within those jurisdictions to continue to function in the event of some catastrophic failure of the present monetary system. We also want to rely on competition in the free market as much as possible to promote the use of this money. We want to protect the people of the state and local governments who adopt this money against intervention by rogue officials from the general government in Washington. And that's a very interesting question, this intervention question, because a lot of people say, well, this problem could be solved through private action. All private individuals have to do is to begin making their transactions payable in Bitcoin, some alternative currency, gold or silver coin, whatever. You can write so-called gold contracts. They were made unenforceable in the Roosevelt era, but then they were reallowed by statute in 1977, 1978, really. So it's certainly legal to make a gold or silver or Bitcoin clause contract, which states that this contract can be enforced only through the payment of whatever falls into that payment category. And according to decisions came out of the Supreme Court, interestingly enough, after the Civil War in the gold clause era, when people were making gold clauses to protect themselves against appreciation of paper money, those clauses have to be enforced specifically. That is, if they say payment in gold, they have to be, pay be paid in gold or in silver and Bitcoin, whatever. The courts have no leeway there. So why doesn't this happen? As you see, depreciating paper currency, why aren't more of these contracts being made, certainly in the business realm and in the realm of long-term business transactions? The answer is regulatory costs. You take the Internal Revenue Service position on a contract that is made in the United States gold or silver legal tender coins, American Eagles, uh, American Liberty silver coins, legal tender coins. They have specific dollar denominations impressed on them by order of Congress, statutory authority, constitutional authority for that matter. Congress has the power to coin money and regulate the value thereof, right? And the IRS takes the position that those contracts have to be 
measured monetarily in the so-called fair market value of the gold or silver Federal Reserve notes, not in, on the face value of those coins. Notwithstanding, notwithstanding that the Supreme Court in 1878 specifically addressed that question and said the opposite, the Thompson versus Butler case. So now the IRS says, well, it's a frivolous position if you take that position that the Supreme Court itself has said is correct. So what I have been proposing as we go through the states, Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin, a tender and payment of debts, anything but, which means the states reserve the power to make gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. What kind of debts are we talking about? Generally speaking, those are contracts, probably commercial contracts in most cases, that arise where? In the state courts. So we have an explicit reservation of constitutional authority within the original body of the Constitution. This is not something that you find in the Ninth Amendment or the Tenth Amendment. It's right there in the original body of the Constitution, and therefore it controls and limits all of the powers of Congress. The power to coin money and regulate the value thereof, the power to borrow money and implicitly to emit bills, which doesn't exist, but they say it does. All of those powers are limited by this reserved power of the states not to make anything but gold and silver coin tender of payment of debts. And the only thing I would expand on that is to say today we can use electronic gold and silver, which gives us all the technological advantages of something like Bitcoin, leaving the anonymity aside, ties us directly into the Constitution, ties us directly into the free market because it's using gold and silver, which is generated by the market, and removes the states and localities and people within that jurisdiction from the overarching control of the US government. And if the tax authorities want to deal with that, their simple solution is for those transactions that are made in gold and silver, generate a new Schedule X. And people report those gold and silver transactions and pay their taxes in the medium of exchange that they've used. And I would be willing to bet that if this kind of a system were put into play, and actually the Supreme Court's already ruled it would be constitutional, Lane County versus Oregon, go read that case, that you would see a reversal of Gresham's law. That this kind of system would spread from state to state, locality to locality, and at a certain stage, even the people in Congress and the taxing authorities in Washington, D.C. would recognize that the only way they could keep up the real purchasing power of the taxes they were collecting was to begin to tax in gold and silver by accepting the new alternative system. Thank you. Well, good morning. I am Walker Todd, and uh, some of the same territory covered by the prior, the prior speakers, Mr. Allison and uh, Mr. Vieira, I'll be covering uh, again somewhat. But I want to try to bring it down to an institutional framework analysis as well as a constitutional analysis of what is to be done. I wrote a paper years ago that was never published, and I'm trying to get it out the door in the context of this current paper for the Cato Conference on what I called 10 Fundamental Truths About Money and Banking. And I wrote that paper originally to try to remind economists especially 
that the hip bone is connected to the thigh bone, the thigh bone is connected to the knee bone, and so on. There are decision chains where the next decision in the line is dependent on what have you already decided. And if you go down certain paths at the beginning, you increasingly become locked into certain institutional choices. And that's sort of the situation in which I would argue we find ourselves today. If you find yourself living in a banking system with unbacked fiat currency issued by a central bank that is these days dominated by the Washington entity within it, and you express shock and horror that a group in Washington would respond to political pressures, well, come on. Uh, you want to have that thing without regulation, without uh, deposit insurance, and so on and so forth. So let's go back and review some 10 fundamental truths quickly. Um, number one, as already cited earlier, is the saying by J.P. Morgan in response to a question at the old National Monetary Commission hearings, um, Morgan said, gold is money, everything else is credit. Well, I looked it up and they give in my paper the citation for the source. To read it, he doesn't say exactly that, but it's a good, succinct summary of what he did say. The key passages are on pages 48 to 51 of the uh, reprint of his testimony. Um, but gold is money, everything else is credit. Still true as it was 100 years ago. Once acquired gold or silver in a bimetallic system becomes the only asset that has monetary value at all times and in all circumstances. And unlike anything else on financial statements, gold as an asset does not have to be the liability of anyone else. So keep that in mind. Are you, the number one decision you must make is, are you or are you not going to have gold or Bitcoin or something else as the centerpiece of your system? Point two, in an unregulated or free banking policy, either extreme position works, at least within its own terms. Either banks should follow a gold standard and maintain an adequate gold reserve against liabilities, or they should maintain no reserve and issue liabilities valued entirely at whatever the bid price is in the market, regulating the quantity of issue to affect the bid price. And you could argue that Bitcoin sort of follows that model, as we heard it described this morning. Central banks may be convenient, but strictly speaking, are not necessary under this set of choices. Point three, in a regulated or a lawful money banking system, either extreme position also works, at least within its own terms. Either banks should be held to a statutorily mandated reserve requirement in gold or lawful money, And what do I mean lawful money? I mean U.S. government notes, bonds, bills, currency, and lesser coin redeemable in gold or silver. Or they should hold no gold, but should hold statutorily prescribed reserves of full faith and credit U.S. government obligations. 
So you get to the question then of fractional reserve banking versus 100% reserve banking. Both credit and the means of its repayment are obtained more easily under fractional reserve banking. But the unsubsidized safety of the banking system is assured more easily under 100% reserve banking. Central banks or a government regulatory system or both tend to play more significant roles under this set of choices, especially if you choose fractional reserve banking. Point four, federal deposit insurance may be helpful in preventing irrational bank runs, but so can public assurance of the prudent conduct of the banking business. Plans like safe banking, the separation of deposit taking and payment system functions on the one side from the lending functions of banking or the investment functions, or 100% reserve banking or a postal savings system, these all may have inconveniences, but they provide for the safety of deposits without federal deposit insurance. Um, a banking system that allows commingling of the deposit taking and lending functions falls closer to requiring some kind of deposit insurance than a system that does not allow commingling. One of the issues you have to think about there is the question of should deposits be, the safety of deposits, should that be the driving factor in the banking system? Should that come first? Well, if you start saying that, you're moving in the direction of deposit insurance and regulation. But if you're willing to say deposits are just another liability of the bank, a general liability, then you theoretically don't have to have deposit insurance or much in the way of regulation. But if you go down that set of choices of saying they're just another liability, let's review the bidding on what were the traditional private sector regulatory operations regarding the conduct of banking. They could include militia action to keep your bankers honest. They definitely included tarring, feathering, and riding out of town on a rail. The traditional punishment for financial fraud is what I just said. Okay, so which would you rather have? The private remedy or regulation? If you're in a fractional reserve banking environment. Point five, allowing depository institutions to engage in risk-taking activities that are not closely related to the traditional business of banking normally should require segregation of those activities from the deposit-taking and payments function to, prever to prevent adverse consequences of the risks from endangering the value of savings and payments. If you wind up allowing near-gaming activities inside the insured bank or inside registered broker-dealers holding customer funds, you're begging for trouble. It's like lining up dominoes so that the fall of one ensures the fall of all. 
The latter-day version of that is in the aftermath of the recent crisis, all the big banks that are large players in the derivatives market gradually moved their derivative operations, not from subsidiaries, uh, they were in subsidiaries of the holding companies, they've now been moved inside the insured banks so that the perception among the market players is the regulatory system, the deposit insurance apparatus, guarantees that the derivative claims will be paid off in the end, somewhat as they were in the fall of 08. So the regulators haven't done anything about that yet. Bank of America was last to do this, and I think they did it in 2011. So the issue has been on the table for three years with essentially nothing done by the regulators to back it out of the insured deposit system. Skipping down a little bit. It's a mistake to have a central bank that is charged with a currency issue and overseeing the supply of bank credit and then authorizing that same central bank to make loans to the institutions that it supervises. Because the temptation arises over time that supervisory or regulatory mistakes will be papered over or covered up by a timely and not very well publicized discount window loan, which could even be of an emergency character. What makes no sense whatsoever is in the fall of 08, the Fed began to make loans invoking Section 13.3, subject on which I'm considered something of an expert. Uh, they started making loans to institutions they did not regulate, did not inspect, did not supervise, and had never inspected them. So you can ask Mr. Allison later what he thinks of it, but is it a reasonable proposition for a banker to make a loan to somebody whose account books he's not seen, never will be allowed to see, et cetera? So remember that in a free market banking system, which we tended to have somewhat before the Federal Reserve existed. The old National Banking Act system was not a bad system. The complaint of the power players was there are too many bank crises. We need something to deal with these banking panics and so on. But it wasn't so bad, the old national bank system. And um, in that system, could you be a national bank only if you were a corporation question? Corporations were allowed to have bank charters. But the answer is no. One of the issues that confronted the old Reconstruction Finance Corporation in 1932-33 was that the majority of American banks were not corporations, and the vehicle chosen for federal assistance to the banks was purchase of preferred stock. Well, if you're not a corporation, you can't issue preferred stock. So a lot of the banks that were still partnerships, sole proprietorships and the like, 
converted to corporate form at that point in order to have preferred stock they could sell to the RFC. There are a few private sector uh, banks still operating, not in corporate form. Most people haven't heard of them. Those in the know know about them. You can ask me afterward who they are. But guess what? They tend to have been around for 200 years, even though they don't have deposit insurance and they're not that heavily regulated by the Fed. Why so? And the answer is they're in partnership form. As one of the CEOs of one of those institutions put it to me once, I know that when I go home at night, if we bet wrong today, we lose the house we lose the children's college fund. We even lose the children's pony. While those SOBs at Goldman Sachs get to keep everything they socked away as of the day before. Prudent banking might require, prudent unregulated banking might require a reversion to that non-corporate form of banking. In the little time that remains, let me sum up a few things about what the Constitution says about money and banking and central banks. Try not to repeat too much of what Ed Vieira said. I've written as follows regarding uh, state-issued currency notes. The states are banned from passing legal tender laws for anything except gold and silver coin. Bullion seems to be accepted and cannot be made legal tender. Ed may disagree with me on that, but we'll see. This means that state legislatures could proclaim bullion or anything else a form of money lawful for commerce, exchange, the payment of taxes at the state level, but the states cannot require private persons to accept anything other than gold or silver coins. A legal tender law requiring the acceptance of alternative forms of money usually affects property rights negatively by requiring an exchange of things of value for things of lesser value. What about the power of Congress to authorize the issuance of legal tender paper money? I would say today, alas, the Constitution does not prohibit Congress from authorizing legal tender paper money. When this issue was debated in Philadelphia in 1787, even George Mason agreed that the hands of Congress should not be tied in an emergency on this point. And if I can find my, I can give you the dates of those uh, statements to look up in Madison's notes. Um, On that issue, the issuance of paper money, that is debated on August 16, 1787. What about central banking? Well, on September 14, a proposition was introduced by Benjamin Franklin, September 14, 1787, to allow to amend the proposition for cutting roads and post roads to say, how about canals too? And at that point, 
the delegates rose up and said, well, wait a minute, canals are usually cut by corporations formed for that purpose. If you authorize the chartering of a canal company, that will be in deemed to authorize powers of incorporation generally, and people will immediately think you want to charter a bank. And you know how we feel about banks. So the proposition was debated. It lost on a vote of eight to three, eight states to three. Okay, that is the only time the subject came up, the power to have a central bank. That allusion earlier, I guess it was Mr. Allison saying the two Supreme Court justices saying it's unconstitutional to have a central bank. They're probably thinking about that. It wasn't in the powers of Congress originally. Hamilton managed to persuade George Washington that by relying on the general welfare clause of the Constitution, the necessary and proper clause, the power to borrow money on the credit of the United States, to raise taxes, and so on, that a bank would be convenient for these purposes, and everybody knows that necessary really just means convenient. Jefferson argued back that you shouldn't change the Constitution for a shade more or less of convenience. But Jefferson did advise Washington that the matter was so close, Congress having passed a bill and put it on his desk, that unless he, Washington, thought Hamilton had bribed Congress, that he should go ahead and pass the bill be assigned it into law, and that's how we got the first central bank. In McCulloch versus Maryland in 1819, Chief Justice John Marshall, who had the notes that had been exchanged between Jefferson and Hamilton in Washington's papers, Marshall was the official biographer of George Washington, that's why he had the notes. But in that uh, opinion, 1819, Marshall ruled that the doctrine of implied powers within the Constitution arising from the Necessary and Proper Clause and the General Welfare Clause, that this is good argument and the bank is constitutional as it was constructed then. And it had five directors appointed by the president, 20 elected by the private shareholders. It was a mixed private and public entity. So my argument is, you don't like the structure of the present Federal Reserve System, you have to go back and re-argue McCulloch versus Maryland. And there are prominent lawyers representing state-chartered banks in New York who'd be willing to do that, but you won't get much traction for it in Washington, D.C. My final point would be, if you want to restructure the Fed, make it perform better uh, without totally abolishing it, I would start by abolishing the Board of Governors. It was a last-minute thought. It was an overlay on the original plan. Woodrow Wilson insisted that there had to be a politically appointed body sitting in Washington that he could influence to make the president's will known in monetary matters. You could have a federal open market committee comprised of the 12 reserve banks without the board. They can meet and do monetary policy if that's what you want them to do. 
And I think you'd get far better outcomes than we have had in recent years if you had just the 12 reserve banks voting without Washington telling them what to do. And with that, I'll stop. Time for, we've got time for a few questions, and I will emphasize uh, questions, not statements. Uh, so in the, and also wait for the microphone to come to you. Identify yourself and any affiliation. Uh, we'll start over here. Bill Cunningham with Septus. And in line with your, your discussion, Mr. Vieira, about states picking up uh, the alternate currencies, a number of states have looked at having gold as legal tender. I think Virginia, uh, Utah, Texas even had an electronic circulating component to it. None of them, as best I can tell, ever got any traction. Is there anywhere in the United States now where there is some potential traction? And if not, how would you get that kind of a movement started? Well, of course, one of the problems is that the state legislators don't understand this problem as within their area of authority, let alone expertise. You talk to a typical state legislator, and I had this experience in Virginia trying to get a study commission set up to look at the possibility of alternative currencies. And the response was generally, well, that's a problem for the U.S. Treasury. That's a problem for the Federal Reserve. It's not a problem for the Commonwealth of Virginia. Exactly wrong, but, you know, typically that's what they do. Uh, then secondly, statutes such as the one passed in Utah, these people are moving on little cat's feet. And so the first step that they wanted to take was, let's declare in Utah that United States legal tender gold and silver coins are legal tender in Utah. Big deal. Of course they are. You couldn't declare the opposite. Right? What is this all about? What they needed to say under that statute was that the gold clause contracts made in the state of Utah with those coins had to be specifically enforced by the Utah court so you wouldn't have the judiciary playing some of these monetary substitution games. And then somewhere in the statute claim that this authority they were exercising in the statute derived from their constitutional authority to make gold and silver coin tender and payment debts so as to obviate the possibility of Congress coming back again with a gold seizure trick that they pulled in 33 and 34. And that's where the legislators, I mean, the yellow streak shows up. It's not so much a matter of they don't understand as they bloody well do understand that they don't want to go against, directly against, the authority of the government in Washington. And my response is, well, if you don't go against that, you're going to go under. Those are your choices. Uh, sure. And I endorse everything that Ed just said. Uh, he has been one of the leading lights in this crusade to get the legislatures to adopt uh, uh, at least U.S. gold and silver coins as, as a legal tender within the states. It's a self-evident proposition, and it's shameful that it gets as little traction as it does. Do you want to talk about the uh, tax aspect, the fact of the capital gains tax, though, that is the problem right now, sales tax on these coins? Yeah, that's the thing that will kill all of these alternative currencies. The IRS takes the position that U.S. gold and silver coins, although legal tender and denominated in dollars and statutorily designated by Congress and so forth and so on, these are property for the purpose of calculating taxes. So you get a $50 United States uh, gold eagle as your, quote, income, taxable income. What's the value of that for tax purposes? It's not 50, although Congress has said that it is. 
it's what, 1,200 or whatever, whatever the free market value is. And so now in order to enter into those transactions on a large scale, you have to keep essentially two sets of books. You have to keep the gold and silver set of books over here, and then you have to keep the uh, calculation and Federal Reserve notes over here to the date, right? Because you're calculating right. each capital day. gains each, each, day. each day. Well, imagine what this would be for a major, you know, Kroger's supermarket or whatever. Who can do this? Mm-hmm. Or at least the accounting bills and the lawyers' bills are going to be astronomical, especially if you get audited. Same problem with Bitcoin. I don't understand these people with Bitcoin think they're going to be anonymous. The government in this country has them personally. Mm-hmm. And they simply do the same thing that they did with foreign bank accounts. His schedule such and such with a line item. Do you have any Bitcoin transactions? And if you do, go to Schedule WY and list every bloody one of them. Right. And if you don't do the $10,000 fine, 10 years in jail. Simple answer. And, and there's also a sales tax that the states charge right. on the sale of U.S. legal tender gold and silver coins. The exchange, the exchange of Federal Reserve notes for U.S. gold and silver coin in many states is taxable as, uh, under sales tax. And this is the McCulloch versus Maryland case. This is the states attempting to burden with a tax the exchange of one federal instrumentality, assuming Federal Reserve notes are constitutional, one federal instrumentality for another, Federal Reserve notes for gold or Federal Reserve notes for U.S. silver. Clearly unconstitutional. And not only do they get away with it at the state level, because, of course, the state courts are going to rule in their favor, but when these cases have gone infrequently to the federal courts, the federal courts have ruled, contrary to McCulloch versus Maryland, in favor of the states. Why is this? Because they want to suppress the use of those alternative currencies. I think we have a question here up front. Uh, Carl Golovin. No state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and payment of debt. Roger Sherman, I believe, is most responsible for putting those words in the Constitution, author of Caveat Against Injustice. Wasn't his intent more than just creating a, establishing that power for the state, establishing there's a positive protection in the Constitution for individuals to have gold and silver coin to protect their wealth from being inflated away by paper money. And isn't really education of the population as a whole necessary to remind them it's in the average person's benefit to have gold and silver coins circulating, uh, not just something that the powerful or wealthy are benefited by? I suspect the short answer to that is yes. Yes. (laughs) Full agreement. We'll go uh, right back here in the middle um, just so we can get a few questions. More questions in. Hi, this question is for Walker. Uh, Brad Jansen, freebanking.org. Walker, I like your idea of sort of decapitating the Fed and getting rid of the Federal Reserve Board. Why not then go a step further and remove the geographical restrictions on the Federal Reserve branch banks and let them compete with each other and have competition in central banks? Interesting you should raise that question because back around 1990, it was before Jerry Jordan and I think even before Lee Hoskins at Cleveland, I was trying to encourage Karen Horn to do the same thing uh, at the Cleveland Fed. Um, One of the issues goes back to an accounting change forced on the reserve banks by the Board of Governors in the 1970s. Previously... Uh, each reserve bank was accountable for its own Federal Reserve notes. And after the change, they were all thrown in a common pot, essentially, and each bank is accountable just pro rata based on capital and surplus. But if you stuck to the old system 
And the old Federal Reserve bulletins published tables showing you who, which reserve bank owes what to whom. Um, but uh, if you had stuck to the old system, I pointed out to her that in the 1980s, during the Third World Debt Crisis, Cleveland would be trading at par or slightly better and New York at a hefty discount. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that's fair to say. Uh, right here in the middle, um, I, I, I will note that uh, the uh, thrift version of the original Federal Reserve, the Federal Home Loan Banks, is a big question of whether you could be able to use competing Federal Home Loan Banks. And uh, while that's still an open policy question, I'm not sure that that's working out for the best. Right. Exactly. I agree with you that in practice it's not, not doing so well. Hyman Arbonne, president of the National Economist Club. My question is, uh, which type of banking system is more prone to state intervention and regulations? A free banking system with fractional reserve banking or a 100% uh, deposits banking system? I Well, sorry, but, but Walker, I, I, uh, John may want to talk on that too. Yeah, let him go first. I think they're... Uh, you have to set the context either way. I mean, the, the motivation for uh, governments to regulate is usually to control. It's not really about protecting depositors and those kind of things. So those things are actually fairly easy to do. <laughs> There's lots of ways you could do that with private insurance pools, et cetera. So I, I, if you look at, let's go back to years ago, the state banks <clears throat> before the Federal Reserve, they were forced basically to keep reserves of state bonds, which were used to build railroads that didn't need to be built. And, and so I don't think you could, should see regulation as really about safety and soundness. I think it's really about control, asset allocation. If it were, the regulators would act r much differently than they act. In my career, I've never seen the FDIC identify a bank failure in advance. Never. We all knew they were going to fail. So, so they're actually operating with a very different set of incentives. <laughs> Uh, and, and, if you, uh, and that goes to public choice theory. The reason they don't do that, in the good times, bankers often have political clout. So who wants to go in when you can't really prove the bank's in trouble and, and create problems <laughs> when it's just going to hurt your career? So, but then after the fact, when the banks get in trouble, then they overreact on the other side because making bankers bad guys. So I, I don't think it's the design of the system. And let, I think it, it is design of the system only in the sense that you have to have rules that keep the government from regulating banks, period, and then the market chooses. And I think that's the answer. I think you can define how factual reserves let the market choose, and people take their consequences. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's go to that. We'll make sure we get a few questions, and we'll go right here in the middle up front and come back to it for more. I guess one step more primitive than going from whatever modern money to gold would be going to barter. <laughs> there you go. So now, but but my, my question then would be, if you had a contract set up on barter, um, at least since they passed the Income Tax Act and, and, and uh, courts still have to regulate contracts even if they're based on barter, and uh, sometimes it's hard to force someone to perform a service or whatever, so the, so the court would be forced to settle those damages in, in something. And typically that would be uh, monetary payment dollars in, in exchange. So could, could you address that more primitive system as a, as a way to understand how a, uh, a gold standard or, or other uh, central banking standard might work? 
I'd like to make one practical comment about that. There's actually a lot of barter that goes on in the commercial world today, particularly in real estate markets because of tax reasons. Mm-hmm. One way to avoid taxes is to barter assets for assets. Now, they're usually not long-term contractual-based deals, but there's a very large barter market in the U.S., in real estate industry, driven primarily because you don't have to ca- get ta- capture taxes on capital gains. They, yeah. Well, actually, they really like kind transactions. They have a real difficult time, uh, and usually you can avoid uh, taxes. But that's a tax-driven di- more than a monetary system. Right. right. They do have to be like kind. That, that's my point. Yeah. yeah I, I would have said the same thing. The main problem there is the IRS, that uh, even barter is valued as though it were money, and you're supposed to be taxed on the market value of uh, the barter transaction. So. Right, as compared to basis, he points out, yes. Exactly. Let's uh, take a question over here. I guess one can speculate if the Federal Reserve keeps going on this path, barter might become increasingly more attractive. (laughs) Right. Uh, Terry Savage from Chicago, Illinois. Professor Veer, I've heard you since CMRE back in the 80s espouse these thoughts. Constitutional issues aside, I'm from Illinois. A state which has a $100 billion deficit in its pension plans. I mean, not out into the future, just real action, real deficit now. City of Chicago facing more than a couple of billion dollars of deficits for its police and fire and teachers' pensions. So how could you possibly think that, that those people who are months behind in paying their bills and dependent on federal revenues to pay their Medicaid services and so forth— how could it possibly work that the states, maybe excepting Utah, could enforce some kind of solid money contracts or go on to a gold standard themselves? Well, you're on the Titanic, <laughs> and it's sinking. And now the question is, well, there aren't enough lifeboats on the Titanic. Our Titanic, we have the possibility to build a few lifeboats. And saving some more people is better than saving no more people. And I'm sorry that you live in Illinois, but it goes back to the question this gentleman raised over here. If people don't understand what's going on, they're going to be fleeced. Right. And you talk about pension funds. Here's an example. I had a case long ago, actually two cases, in the Supreme Court of the United States dealing with public sector unionism. Mm-hmm. And the first one we had was a case called the Bood versus Board of Education. You can look this one up. And actually, you have to go to the mm-hmm. Supreme Court archives to look up what's important in the case, what was actually argued, not what they told you was argued in the opinion, because that's all baloney. All right? mm-hmm. What was actually argued. <laughs> and what was argued to them was, in this particular case, that you couldn't give these public sector unions, teacher union in that case, AFT, <coughs> American Federation of Teachers, you couldn't give them the kind of authority that they wanted to get over non-union employees, force, forcing the non-union employees to recognize them and pay them money, because this would so solidify the union's position politically that it would end up at both sides of the bargaining table, and you would see pensions and other wages and other settlements going through the roof because there would be no political accountability in the system. And only one justice even mentioned this tangentially, Justice Powell, in a concurring opinion. He said, well, you know, the voters and the other people might have something to say about this because they're going to be affected, but that's not part of this case. Wrong. That was what was argued to him. All right? So they allowed that to happen. And then there was a subsequent case called Minnesota Community Board of Faculty Association versus Knight, which dealt with the NEA, which went even further into that problem. And they fudged that one as well. 
So if you want to know what the main problem with municipal finance and these excessive pension funds and wage settlements and so forth and so on, I can name the, what is it, 12 or 13 particular individuals in this country who are responsible for that because I was involved in those cases. This was not an accident. This was something that was done really mm -hmm. intentionally. They were told what was going to happen, and it happened. Yeah. Also, I would chime in that if the gold standard had applied in Illinois, they couldn't have made those pension promises in the first place because right. it would have lacked all credibility. Uh, I think we've got time for one or two more uh, quick questions over here. I guess the moral of the story is the pension system, our pension system is even worse shape than our monetary system, perhaps. Uh, in <laughs> Illinois, the pension system is <laughs> in worse. Illinois. In Ohio, it's okay. Uh, my name is Theodore Gebhardt. This is a question for John Allison. Uh, in an unregulated banking system, who or what would determine capital requirements, the components of those requirements, and the weighting of those components? I think the answer in an unregulated bank banking system would be the market would determine that. Right. You know, if you look back when we had a less regulated system, basically banks kept about 20% equity, pure equity. Um, the regulated system, and, and one reason the bankers actually supported it, it allowed them to, to leverage more and more because they had this big brother back here to take care of them. So I think the market would drive the equity in an unregulated system. Right. But remember, in an unregulated system, the taxpayers aren't on the hook if the bank fails. People have to make a judgment of where to put their money. Uh, I believe there could be designed a private deposit insurance system that would protect small depositors, which is usually the issue, and then sophisticated depositors would make their own judgments. And uh, that's, we've had a, we had a free banking system in Scotland that operated a lot that way. And, and a lot of, if you look at the U.S. banking system, um, the market pretty much drew, drove capital requirements. You know, and I'll certainly add to that. We certainly see in the non-financial corporate sector that the you know, more highly leveraged you are, the more expensive debt becomes relative to equity. And so it's ultimately a choice at the margin. Uh, obviously, there are a lot of distortions, such as the tax advantages toward debt that distort that decision. But again, you know, in the marketplace, the relative price of debt to equity would drive that. So I think we have time for one more question before we head to lunch. We'll hit that here. Well, he's going back. I'll chime in that those private banks I was mentioning before, that's sort of how it works. They have to do public accounting statements, but uh, there's nobody telling them how much minimum capital they have to have and so on. But the market essentially sets the value of their equity. Um, Mr. Allison, I'm John Ream from Morgan Stanley. The idea is raised from time to time to have an audit of the Federal Reserve. Could you comment um, about what an audit would accomplish, how that might uh, affect the debate about monetary policy? I, I think an audit would be largely useless. I'm, I mean, I'm, it's fine with me to have one, but I think that FED actually discloses the facts, and you see the facts, and they're leveraged out the kazoo so it's not, we don't need an audit to know. <laughs> they, they would fail their own audit standards, by the way. They are far more leveraged than they would allow a commercial bank to be today, and they have some pretty risky long-term assets on their books. They would easily, if interest rates went, you know, because you could argue how much control they have, but if, if the market forces interest rates up, they're going to have a huge negative net worth. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm, an audit's fine, but I don't think it's material because I think they actually disclose and I think you can actually figure out that they're broke. I mean, well, they're, they're, high, they're not broke, but they're highly risky, except, of course, they can print money and, and their implications about right. that. If, if I could right. parse, parse that out a, a, a little bit, um, you know, while I very much agree with John's point that I think an audit would be achieve a little bit of good, not a lot. Uh, often in Washington, what is thought of as a GA audit is not necessarily a financial audit, but a policy program audit. 
Uh, and so as a former health staffer, for instance, every time we would have Humphrey Hawkins, we would bring CRS and GAO up and come and brief the staff and try to help the staff and the members actually understand kind of what the Fed did so that maybe they'd ask one or two intelligent questions. Uh, and so the purpose of my opinion with a GAO audit of the Federal Reserve is, is largely to educate Congress to be able to engage in some minimal level of effective oversight that is missing today. And I, again, say that as a former staffer of the Senate Banking Committee, it's embarrassing the level of questions that are asked at the typical uh, Federal Reserve hearing. So to me, again, it's less about financial audit, more about a program audit. Yeah. Title 11 of Dodd-Frank Act has provisions for audit within it, but they are limited to the emergency lending period, uh, roughly year-end 07 to uh, 2010. And I was asked by a Hill staffer when that was on the in committee when they said, here's your choice. You get no audit or you get this limited emergency lending only audit. What do you think we ought to do? <laughs> and my response was take the emergency audit because it will turn up enough bad stuff. So it will create a constituency, I hope, in Washington for a more thoroughgoing audit later. And they did pass that. So anytime the Fed does emergency lending going forward, they will be audited for it. And I hope that inhibits them from doing it again. Also, also worth mentioning, I think it has helped question the credibility of the Fed. I very much remember when then Vice Chair uh, Don Cohn said that if the counterparties to AIG were revealed, we'd somehow some calamity and the financial system would come to an end. And then the names were revealed and nothing happened. So right. again, I think it does raise questions about um, increased transparency in the function of the Fed. So I, I want to thank you as an audience, thank our panelists, and give you a little bit of housekeeping. We're all going to go upstairs. Well, anybody who actually wants to go upstairs and have lunch on the second floor, we will be back here at 1.15, where Patrick Byrne will be staying in this very spot and giving us a wonderful lunch presentation. So uh, next 45 minutes are yours. Yep. Thank you.